Hello and welcome back to another episode of Talking Terror brought to you by the Terrorism and Extremism Research Centre here at the University of East London. I'm John Morrison. Today's episode was recorded on March 6th, 2018 at approximately 10.30 GMT. I'm delighted to have on today's pod uh, Professor Torre Bjorgo, uh, the director of C-REX, one of the most influential centres on right-wing extremism and extremism in general across Scandinavia and becoming one of the most influential centres across the world. Torre, thank you so much for being on today's pod. I'm delighted, thank you. So how did you get involved in this area of research? Well, it started... Uh uh, when I was a research assistant, before I had finished my, my uh, master thesis in social anthropology, I was asked to become a research assistant for a scholar at the Norwegian Institute of International Affairs, Daniel Hattesweit. And our first project was on the media coverage of the war in Lebanon in uh, 1982, I think it was. And then uh, I went to a, on a fieldwork to study the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. I came back and then Daniel asked me whether I would be involved in a project looking at political communication and rhetoric uh, and going into semiotic theory. And, um, and uh, this became uh, eventually uh, first a report and then a book. And in the process, I did most of the reading and most of the writing actually in this uh, project. And um, uh, I came across a book by Umberto Eco, uh, Semiotics and the Philosophy of Language, which was a very heavy, dense text. And I, I struggled a lot. To, to understand it, but it was one of the really strong texts and one of the strong theorists in the field. But then he he also had written a novel called The Name of the Rose, which was a kind of a kind of crime story uh, placed in a, in a, in a monastery back in the Middle Ages, uh, and this was actually a kind of novel version. Uh, of his semiotic theory, and it was very helpful, and it helped me to understand more about uh, the, this theory of science, how science are interpreting science. Because what we tried to do in our research project was to see how semiotic theory and theory of rhetorics could help us to understand political processes better. Uh, and, and this was extremely helpful. Uh, and we, we developed that book. Uh, it eventually became a success. Actually, before I had finished my own master thesis, uh, this was published as a book. It was trans uh, called uh, uh, Political Communication, Introduction to Semiotics and Rhetoric. And it was translated, uh, first written in Norwegian, then translated into Swedish and Danish, and uh, some years later into Bulgarian. So it's, it was a, a kind of a success. It was used in, uh, in political science, media studies, uh, language studies, uh, because it was a bit early when it comes to, to using this kind of theories to understand polit politics later. Um, constructivism became a big fad, and this was a little bit ahead of that. Yeah. Uh, also, during that process, uh, we, I came across another interesting book which had a lot of impact on me, because one of the chapters uh, in this book on political communication would like to look at, at the terrorism. And I came across a book by Alex Schmid and Janne de Graaf, called, um, which was called, uh, uh, I have to check the, the, the exact title, um, it was called uh, Terrorism, 
Um, violence as communication. Violence as communication, yes. Yeah. And uh, and this was uh, became a, a very influential book for me uh, because it it uh, it opened the, the the sort of the window for me to to study and understand terrorism and political violence. I started to apply uh, Alex Schmidt's uh, perspectives on on uh, this communicative dimension and about how. Um, groups which could not get access to to the normal channels of communication in in, in uh, politics sometimes made use of violence as an alternative strategy and when i applied this to the norwegian uh, scene looking at uh, at uh, political violence by the extreme right and the extreme left i saw that in norway we had had quite a lot of right-wing uh, violence and even terrorism uh, but we had a very strong uh, left-wing maoist scene and they were quite revolutionary. They they preached a violent revolution, but they never and they did commit some demonstration violence, but they never turned to terrorism. And they actually had a strong barrier against terrorism, stopped people from going in that direction. And when I tried to understand why that was the case, I realized that they had access to the to the channels of communication. They had a lot of um, of uh, they dominated in many ways the the university scenes, the public debate. They got access to the media. People from their camp uh, ended up in, in strong positions in society. Became professors, uh, journalists, editors, and uh, whatever. Uh, whereas the opposite was the case with the neo-Nazis. They were really barred. They were if they tried to have a public meeting, they were they were beaten up. Um, and they they used violence as a strategy, so it worked out quite well. Okay. Uh, this this theory, yeah. uh, and then a few years later, um, when I want pla was planning my my doctoral degree, I wanted to study uh, uh, political violence and terrorism in the Scandinavian context. Uh, I approached uh, uh, Alex Schmid to become my supervisor, and he was then at the University of Leiden. And he accepted me, and I became his student and also his long-time friend. He has been my mentor all through my, my career. And I completed my, my doctorate uh, at the University of Leiden on a, on a thesis on racism and right-wing violence in Scandinavia. Uh, so that was, that was uh, a very influential time for me. Uh, in that uh, time when I was working on my study on right-wing extremist violence, um, uh, in, in Scandinavia, I came across another important book, which was written by a German sociologist, a youth researcher called Helmut Willems. It's called uh, the book was called "Fremdenfeindliche Gewalt: Einstellungen, Täter, and Konflikteskalation." It was a long book, 280 pages, and it was the first and only book I have been uh, in German. I've managed to read all the way through, but it was very influential for me because uh, I. Um, uh, one of the things I found useful was, and this was at the sort of before people started to talk about radicalization processes, both uh, both Helmut and I was asking the question, why do people get engaged with these uh, extremist groups? Uh, that was quite a lot of researchers who had tried to ask that question. And quite commonly, they, the researchers uh, were looking for one single pathway. And what Helmut did was that he pointed out that there were actually different types of people uh, uh, who uh, who became engaged in these groups of, of uh, these uh, extremist groups for quite different reasons. So there was not one 
type. There was not one pathway of radicalization. There were several different types. And he said that there, you know, first you had the ideologically motivated right-wing extremist, who is often a resourceful pe person. He tends to be a leader. He is often a kind of idolist. Um, and and um, he, he has a strong social background quite often, often quite well educated. The second one are what they call the xenophobe or ethnocentrists, who did not really hold so much uh, ideological convictions. Uh, they tended to be, um, be uh, feeling that they were sort of uh, the discriminated against compared to what all the goodies that the foreigners got and so on. Often they had came from a working class background or some, uh, some uh, not, not the strongest background. The third one was what they called the, the, the criminal and marginalized youth who often came from material background. They had often family problems and they were often uh, often uh, uh, beaten up as a, as a child. They, they were known, they, they grew up with violence and they learned to use violence and often became criminals. And these people also tended to go into these extremist groups. And the final was what they called the, the fellow traveler or mitlaufer, those who came into these groups more for social reasons. They could have an okay background, but they had some social needs, uh, like uh, longing for friends, for protection, for status, whatever. Uh, and, and they went into these groups. And this way of thinking in different types opened up uh, also some understanding for me, and it was quite influential in my own research on why people get involved in, in, um, in uh, violent extremism. And later, I developed that model, made it a more more kind of um, dynamic, that people don't need to be one type forever. They tend to change. Someone who come in as a, as a kind of fellow traveler, he may become uh, radicalized and become more ideological and perhaps go become a leader. And uh, so people may change in a career. So do you feel that the the whole radicalization debate and the the proliferation of the the word radicalization has become problematic in our way of understanding uh, people's engagement with with these groups. Yeah, quite often because there tends to be a kind of unilinear understanding of this uh, issue that people sort of follow one path, and what I think that is not uh, the case empirically. I think there are several different paths, and people do not necessarily, um, it's not the case necessarily that first people get gradually radicalized ideologically and then they engage in violence. Mm -hmm. Quite often, it was one of the main findings of my, my uh, uh, doctoral uh, research that, that young people do not get involved in the racist groups because they are racist, they become racist because they have been involved with a racist or neo-Nazi group for other reasons and then they adopt the, the worldviews and, and, and ways of behind be, be behaving as is accepted in that group. So radicalization, radicalization comes as an, a result of engagement, not as a cause for engagement. Yeah, and this really fits with the research findings of John Horgan and others. And you went on to, uh, when we're looking at your own work, uh, the first piece that you've selected is a piece that you did with John Horgan. It's uh, the edited collection, Leaving Terrorism Behind, Individual and Collective Disengagement. What was the aim for yourself and John in putting this, this uh, edited volume together? Well, first of all, it started with 
one of the chapters in my doctoral dissertation, uh, which where I started to interview young, I interviewed quite a lot of young people in, involved in racist and neo-Nazi groups, and and I wrote a chapter which uh, which was on why young people get in, involved in racist group, what happens to them, and how they disengage. And this chapter actually became the theoretical foundation. This was. Uh, written in the mid-1990s, and it became the foundation, uh, the theoretical foundation for the very first exit program, which I started, initiated in Norway in 1996-97, and it spread to Sweden in 98 and to Germany in 2000, and now we've had similar exit groups uh, in quite a lot of countries in, in the US, Canada, Britain, uh, Australia, uh, the Netherlands, and quite a few other countries. So, so this was actually started many years before in the, in the mid 1980s, in the 90s, and then I met John uh, Horgan in the, uh, I think around 2003 or something like that, and he was uh, he had read what I had written about this uh, disengagement um, processes, and he said that he recognized very much of the same from what he had seen among former members of the IRA and other paramilitary groups in Northern Ireland. So we agreed we should we should start to write uh, to make a project together, and we decided we would like to make an anthology, uh, bringing in people with different um, case studies from different parts of the world, different types of movement, to see whether these processes of, of uh, disengagement and de-radicalization um, uh, could uh, work across movements across countries. So we made this, uh, we started actually to present our ideas at a series of conferences from around 2005, 2006, and we started to talk about the de-radicalization and disengagement, and suddenly these ideas uh, took off, and, uh, and a lot of people, and uh, in particular some security services and, 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 uh, and uh, policymakers took these ideas, and they tended to take the, the term de-radicalization as a main catchword. And suddenly we were a bit behind the wave. We had started in a way, a way we started. Uh, so we we uh, brought together our group. We had to hurry up, and we managed to get our volume out in 19 uh, in, in 2008, which was actually a little bit late, uh, since we had uh, then quite a few others had started to to do research in that in that field. But we were in a way pioneers, even if we our book came out perhaps a year too late for for the big wave. Yeah, <laughs> and you in this you. Uh rightly make the distinction between de-radicalization and disengagement and oftentimes these are um, they're mixed up they're used uh, in the same breath but they have very specific meanings and when you differentiate between them unless you have that differentiation at the beginning you can't really uh, pin down what your desired outcomes are within your de-radicalization or disengagement programs why do you feel uh, and yourself and John emphasize this in the book. Why do you feel that this is so important to get this right, exactly this distinction? Yes, because uh, de-radicalization, in our view, has to do with the change at the cognitive level, at the, at the level of, of, um, of uh, values and attitudes and ideology. Uh, whereas, uh, so radicalization and de-radicalization is on that dimension, whereas engagement and disengagement has to do with the change in behavior about participation in, in, uh, in extremist activities and extremist violence. Mm -hmm. uh, these two processes are linked, but they are loosely linked, which means that sometimes, uh, sometimes people 
as they expect first they radicalize and then they they engage but quite often it's it's the the it's uh, in most cases most people who radicalize never engage in violent activities that's that's the most common thing so it's only a small minority of those who radicalize who actually engage in extremist violence but then also we see a number of cases where people engage in violent activism and and, uh, and terrorism even uh, before or even without being very much radicalized at the ideological level. So sometimes the radicalization takes place afterwards, after they have engaged. And that was, again, the main finding of, one of the main findings of my, my doctoral thesis back in, 19, uh, in the 1990s, that, that young people do not engage in extremism because they have extremist uh, attitudes and values. They uh, kind of get these values and attitudes as a, a result of having engaged for other, quite other reasons. And then, of course, we have also people who do engage in, in uh, extremist activities, but they only radicalize at a very superficial level. They do not, uh, they, it's very, they just do, do the talking and do the walking, but they don't really, have not really integrated these uh, ideological views in their personality. So that also happens. And also, when we when people disengage, they may they may first sometimes de-radicalize, first lose their faith in ideology, and then uh, disengage as a result of that. But quite often, they first disengage for other reasons. They get fed up with conflicts and and, uh, and paranoia, and, and or the or they may long for another life. They have, they are burnt out. But they they still have their their views and, and and values. But gradually, as they have left the group, when their worldview doesn't really get uh, confirmed by the social group anymore, that it starts to lose its credibility, and gradually they de-radicalize. Mm -hmm. uh, and then you have some people who disengage, but they don't de-radicalize. They still keep their their. Uh, their uh, extremist worldviews, even uh, perhaps in a less extreme form, but they may keep it for, for a long time. And there is a risk also that they may re-engage. But I think for policy, it's very important that we keep these levels distinct so we can understand the different uh, variation. And it's very important for assessing where uh, people are in their process, because they may, may be, uh, if they are both disengaged and de-radicalized, they are probably quite safe and not, not a security threat anymore. If they have disengaged but still are radicalized, they may have changed their roles, perhaps radicalized others, or they may re-engage or they may have other uh, other roles. So they, they, there is, it's important for assessment and risk assessment as well. And But also it's all important for what should be the policy aims of uh, or the, the goals of the policies in order to, to influence people. I think the main goals and the sort of easiest to achieve is disengagement, where people stop their involvement in extremist activities, but certainly uh, de-radicalization should also uh, be a goal. Uh, but of course, part of that has to do with reintegration back into society, getting into normal social relations. Um, uh, then they sort of get uh, a firm anchor in the normal world, and that is reducing risk and, and perhaps even making them into productive citizens. Yeah, I think these are hugely uh, important distinctions to make because we need to be able to, to differentiate between the different stages, whether someone's disengaged or de-radicalized or both or neither. And it's 
really really makes us able to assess what's a successful program or not when it comes to de-radicalization or disengagement programs and part of this book the second half is looking at case studies of de-radicalization and disengagement programs um and it's 10 years on now since this book was put out it's hard to believe actually but uh what has been the changes or have things stayed the same as it was back then in relation to the national and international programs out there and where do you feel are the successful and maybe more importantly the unsuccessful disengagement programs I think that the more unsuccessful are those who have a kind of naive belief in de-radicalization, that they can sort of deprogram people from being extremists and then uh, things are solved. Uh, I think that there is a need for a realistic approach, uh, looking at a gradual process, looking at how these people can be attached to normal mainstream society. Uh, and, uh, uh, and I think that there are still some of these programs who have a very simplistic uh, model or simplistic understanding and I think they are bound to fail. Uh, so there is, uh, I think the, the more successful ones are those who work with the whole person, uh, with their, their social context, with their, their whole life and sort of try to help them back into a normal life. Perhaps focusing to begin with more with the uh, with the disengagement and reintegration phase, and then gradually uh, starting to work with with the at levels of attitude. I think uh, Exit Sweden is perhaps one of the most successful cases where they have from the beginning, and they have been now in operation for uh, uh, since uh, actually for 20 years, which is again a sign of, of success. They started in 1998, and they are still running based more or less on the same model where they start out with disengagement and reintegration and then gradually work uh, towards uh, change in values and attitudes. And they use, make use quite a lot of formers in the role of mentors, uh, but they are formers, these formers are trained as therapists. So they, they, have, they are not just relying on their own experience, but they get formal training and they are under guidance from a group of, of very experienced both uh, pedagogues and, and uh, therapists and and uh, formers who have been through this and have uh, worked on this field for a long time and that, i think that is probably the most successful program I'm, i've seen they have helped many hundred neo-nazis in sweden out of this scene i, sp I suppose this use of formers gets around that dilemma that a lot of these programs have is why would the individuals trust those people who are uh, who are say, who are involved in these programs? But by the use of formers and being trained as therapists, this this does get around it in a way. At least it has worked well in the, for this particular group, and I'm I'm not sure it can always be trans. Uh, I, we have seen I've seen some very successful cases of former jihadis who have worked now, uh, who have distanced themselves from the past and, and been uh, involved in, in uh, working with, uh, with um, uh, more recently radicalized young people within the, in the jihadi scene. Uh, but it is important that those formers have really distanced themselves, both in time space from from uh, what they've been into uh, and that they have a very reflective uh, relation to to uh, to what they have been through because 
there, they, I know there are some performers who immediately after they left now they want to become mentors for others. That is that is a bound to be a failure. We we did some unfortunate experiences with involving too early uh, for some performers in in the Norwegian exit, the original Norwegian exit, and and we we uh, we we learned the hard way that that's not a very good idea. So you really need to be very selective on who you involve and they need to have been through a long process before they are ready for that role. Yeah, and it needs to be bespoke for each context, for each setting and the time as well, because uh, what works in Sweden isn't necessarily going to work in Norway, let alone the UK, Ireland, uh, Spain, wherever, that you need to be able to see what the needs are and what will work in each of these places. I do not think that formers are the only one who can fill this role. There, There are some individuals who are professionals who have the the kind of that personality to get trust and and get access get uh, get through to these people and can do uh, extremely good work so i've seen that as well people who come from a totally different background uh, but have uh, have been able to be very effective so i think a combination of of very well selected individuals both Performers and professionals can have a, a, a good chance of, of succeeding. And what you're putting, what yourself and John are putting forward in this book, Leaving Terrorism Behind, is one of a multitude of strategies that we have in relation to preventing terrorism. And in the next piece that you uh, have picked for today's podcast, uh, you fo- you drive multiple strategies and you've got this holistic model in place uh, and this is your book strategies for preventing terrorism uh it's part of the palgrave pivot series it's a nice uh, it's it's a it's a nice short uh, digestible piece that's really uh, geared not just towards ac- academics but towards policymakers as well would you be able to lay out to the listeners exactly what your aims were in this piece yeah, this this started with a book uh, which I call Strategies for Preventing Terrorism, where I tried to summarize what I have learned through more than 20, 25 years of, of research uh, in the field of extremism and terrorism, um, and uh, where I have been quite a lot involved in preventive uh, work, in advising municipalities, the police and others on how to deal with violent extremism in various shapes. And then, but I, what I saw is that there is a tendency to sort of look for the single silver bullet, which would be the answer and how we can, can, uh, can um, prevent people from, from getting involved in, in terrorism. And also I saw that a lot of policy for example, the, the U.S. Uh, war on terror after 9-11 was very one-sided when it looked at the military response with repression, with, with uh, retaliation, with deterrence, uh, in, uh, closing borders and all this. And it, it was very one-sided. On the other hand, I also saw some social workers who were too one-sided on just the only thing was to do uh, to help young people to uh, to uh, become um, uh, to, to, to to get a good life, which was sometimes very good, but it was too narrow as well. So I tried to see: is it possible to develop a holistic approach where I try to integrate different schools of of prevention thinking, uh, both uh, the criminal justice model 
uh, the, the, which is uh, working on lawmaking, on on uh, investigation, on deterrence, on incapacitation, and so on. But also the what you call the 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 um, uh, school of of uh, situational prevention, trying it to make it more difficult to carry out uh, uh, crime, and the, the social prevention school, which try to to prevent people from becoming involved in crime and sort of um, uh, getting marginalized. Uh, and and uh, I thought we, it w should be possible to, to integrate this. If I look at the preventive mechanism, what are the active ingredients in these different ways of thinking? Because these different schools did not really interact well. Uh, so I came out up with nine preventive mechanisms. The first one was to um, develop moral barriers against uh, violence or crime in general, but uh, violence. The second, uh, the second one was deterrence, that people abstain from using violence or committing crime because they fear the consequences. The third one was disruption, that they, they even if they were not deterred or stopped by moral barriers, they could be stopped before they managed to carry out what they planned to do. Uh, then we had incapacitation, which had to do with taking away people's capacity by putting them in prison or uh, in handcuffs or in worst case kill them. Uh, we had also um, to, to reduce rewards, uh, ma making crime does not pay or not giving terrorists what they were after. Uh, we could also reduce, um, uh, we could protect vulnerable targets to, to make uh, the, the, it more difficult to carry out uh, acts of crime, all kind of protective measures we use. We see them on airports and around public buildings every day. Uh, uh, we can um, uh, reduce harm to, to victims, whether from crime or from victims of terrorism. And finally, we could make terrorists or criminals stop their involvement in crime or terror by, by disengagement or desistance from crime, which is, uh, in a way, the ultimate uh, crime prevention policy that will get people to, to stop committing crime and, and, uh, or being involved in violent extremism. And I started making this book where I apply this model to terrorism, but I, in the process I found that this was actually a generic uh, model for crime prevention. So I wrote another book which I called Preventing Crime, a Holistic Approach, which came out two years later, and uh, both in Norwegian and English, and where I tried to apply the same model to domestic burglary, to criminal youth gangs, to organized crime by, by uh, auto-motorcycle gangs, to drink driving and to terrorism. Five very different forms of crime, but where the same nine preventive mechanisms could be applied uh, to, to all of this. And, and do you, I think one of the important uh, messages from this book is that there's no one there's no one way to prevent terrorism, that all of these need to be taking place and need to be taking place at different stages and with, uh, through different agencies as well. Because if we've got just one model for preventing it, we're missing out so much. We need to have this, this holistic approach. But when we look at the book, when it's applied to preventing crime, from crimes from drink driving right up until terrorism, how did you see the comparison? Was there more emphasis on certain uh, strategies for one crime versus uh, versus other crimes, or was it fairly evenly balanced? Well, I, I see that in that different policies in, in different countries tend to emphasize 
some uh, preventive mechanism rather than others. Uh, <coughs> we've seen um, in, uh, in, in countries which has a kind of punitive culture, they tend to make a lot, put a lot of emphasis into to arresting the bad guys and putting them behind bars. You, you look at deterrence, uh, disruption, incapacitation, uh, and, and, and so on. But they they tend to put less emphasis on on the softer preventive approaches. Uh, I think Scandinavian countries are are known to be to be more holistic uh, and put a lot more weight on on uh, an emphasis on on prevention. Our prison system in Norway, for example, is focused on how to make these inmates into good neighbors. They're going to live next to you uh, in a, in a short time. We have to make sure that they will not pose a danger, and we don't do that by treating them harsh and badly. We treat them. We need to learn them how to become good citizens, and that's a very different approach. I think that is. That is partly, you can say that this model is inspired by a kind of Nordic approach to crime prevention, which has to a more holistic way of thinking than you find in in uh, in uh, the U.S. or in Britain for or in France for that matter. So so it's it's kind of also a way to try to 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 um, be a missionary for a broader and a more humanistic approach to, to this. And I think necessary to combine the soft and the hard measures. I don't think we can, we still need prisons, we still need, uh, need to, to use force, but it should be used with in a measured way and not uh, only rely on, on these measures, because then we undermine the other preventive approaches. Yeah, and it's, and it's, it fits well with with what you are talking about uh, in relation to the to the book leaving terrorism behind. Is you need this uh, holistic understanding. You need to know what's important at what stage as well, and uh, you need to be able to assess um, assess the effect of this as well. However, you've now moved on, and I know it's an ongoing project of yours. You're now looking at vigilantism against migrants and minorities. Um, I've seen you present on uh, the group The Soldiers of Odin, and I know you're looking uh, more broadly as well, and you're bringing researchers together who are looking at this this uh, uh, this phenomenon of vigilantism, vigilantism against migrants and minorities. What drew you towards that that topic? Well, it started actually. Uh, we had this what we call the the migrant crisis in in, in 2015, with the loss of migrants coming to Europe. And there were some of the responses to that was to that that um, uh, quite a lot of people look at this kind of wave of migrants with fear, and they were afraid that they would uh, would be a security risk and a, and a risk to public safety. And then we had these unfortunate events in Cologne, uh, in Germany on the New Year's Eve of 2015-2016, uh, where a large number of German women were, were sexually harassed and molested and even raped by mostly um, migrants from North Africa and Middle East. And this, uh, the police tended to handle this with, uh, rather badly, trying to, to tune it down and, and, and not uh, afraid that it would cause kind of, of xenophobic responses if they talk too much about it. And in reality, it undermined totally the trust in the police and it caused a public panic all over Europe. Now, the, the, these uh, dangerous uh, uh, sexually 
uh, brute men from the Middle East are coming to rape our women in, in Europe. And we had uh, uh, suddenly a lot of, of vigilante movements uh, came into being. Uh, one of them was the Soldiers of Odin, which started in Finland, uh, actually in September uh, 2015. But after these events and New Year's Eve, suddenly we got them all over the world, literally. And uh, in Norway started uh, started in late January, and I went uh, on a walk with them in, in February, and they spread quite a lot. And I, w I was became interested in this phenomenon because I realized that this is a form of vigilantism we have seen before in different shapes. Uh, and uh, I got in contact with uh, with a um, uh, researcher, Czech Republic researcher, Miroslav Mars, who also studied vigilantism. He had written several articles about it, and he was in particular interested in the more kind of militia-type vigilantism you've seen in Eastern Central Europe. And we agree, decided that we would make uh, a project together and developing an anthology and get recruit scholars from all over the world to write about different types of vigilante movements. So we got people covering the Ku Klux Klan, which is a really a classic movement. We had people who looked at, uh, at the Jewish vigilantism against Palestinians on the West Bank. We had people who looked at, um, at border patrols, uh, vigilante border patrols uh, on the US-Mexican border. You had similar things in, in uh, Bulgaria. You had uh, uh, also in Slovakia, there were some patrolling the borders uh, where no migrants would come, but it was a kind of performative act. And also we had uh, last year um, uh, some uh, French um, uh, uh, identitarian movement who started an international campaign to, to raise money to rent a boat and have a patrols on the, in the Mediterranean Sea also border patrols. Then we had a number of militia movements, like the, the Hungarian Guard uh, some uh, 10 years back. They were banned, but they inspired similar militias uh, all over Eastern Europe, and they were originally focused on allegedly criminal Roma people. But when the, the migrant uh, crisis came, suddenly they turned to, um, to Muslims as a main uh, enemy and, and threat. So we had a number of these militia types of movements, and then also we had um, uh, street patrols, um, which uh, which were um, uh, soldiers of Odin was one example, but they had similar groups uh, all over Europe and and also in other countries actually. So so we had uh, street patrols in Canada, for example, with uh, soldiers of Odin. So we had a great uh, and even one particular case was we had even cow vigilantism in India. Hindus who were attacking Muslims who were trading with cow meat. Wow. So it was a kind of anti-Muslim uh, case. Uh, we had a very broad variety of, of uh, vigilante uh, movements. We had, some of them were, were not, uh, not violent at all, but just have a kind of implicit threat. Others were extremely violent and, and more terrorist uh, vigilantism. Like we had both with the Kuruksan clan, and we also had in, in Russia, for example, a large number of, of uh, several hundred uh, migrants, and also quite a lot of homosexuals were killed by right-wing extremist vigilantes. And we had, of course, uh, vigilante attacks on asylum centers in Germany and Sweden and elsewhere. So we had a great variety of cases, and we would like to study these comparatively. So we got 
these uh, around 18 scholars from all over the world who were involved in in right in collecting um, comparable data about this very diverse phenomenon in order to enable us to develop a true comparative analysis. And we came together actually last week, had a, the second of our, our workshop here in Oslo, and we have, have got the fantastic uh, data material. Now we have started to work on the comparative analysis. So I, I look very much forward to that book, which will be published uh, in in uh, in a year from now, in, in uh, winter 2019. I think it will be uh, available as open access, so people can actually download it for free. Brilliant. So we hope that will have a good impact. And well, that's that's a commercial. Yeah. No, it sounds great. And would I be right in saying that, say for a group like the Soldiers of Odin, who we're seeing across numerous different countries, that the soldiers of Odin in the north of Europe versus the soldiers of Odin in the south of uh, of Europe around the Mediterranean. In the north, they're less likely to be overtly um, putting forward xenophobic or right wing viewpoints in comparison to those uh, who'd be more in southern Europe. I, I don't think it's south and north here, which makes a difference because the the Finnish original uh, group is, has become quite anti-Islamist and. Okay. Uh, a foreigner, so is a Swedish one, whereas a Norwegian group and some of the Canadian groups, for example, are are very careful not to be associated with right-wing extremism and, and xenophobia. So so uh, the Norwegian group is quite uh, different, in fact. And interestingly, uh, the, the, the Norwegian soldiers of Odin are not, uh, they, they are trying not to look like they are anti-Islam or anti-Muglins. And uh, they try to see that we are here, here to provide safety to everyone and so on. And interestingly, those who started that group did not really have anti-immigration or anti-Islam as their main agenda. Uh, the most of the members, uh, at least I've been told around 70%, are young men with a criminal background. They are, let's say, uh, former youth criminals in the 20s and early 30s. And my interpretation is that these young men see this as an opportunity to change their identity from being the bad guys to become the good guys. Okay. And then uh, being associated with right-wing extremism and racism is a liability and it undermines their, their main personal agenda, which is something different from the political agenda. And I don't think they are, I mean, in terms of crime prevention, they are totally ineffective. But they saw this as an opportunity to change their social standing and social identity. And in some way, it's a bit pity that uh, that they failed because, uh, of course, they, they, they the group as such looked uh, pretty scary to most people. They uh, went there with their black uh, shirts, uh, with uh, with uh, warrior-like symbols and big dogs, and they looked uh, pretty frightening to most people. So they did not provide, uh, sort of provide much uh, sense of safety for most people. But they, they did not commit any violence. They tried to be good guys, but it didn't work well. And the police um, started to, to find them because it was seen as a breach of the police law, which uh, had a police monopoly of doing these kind of patrols. It, it's a tricky, it's a tricky situation for the police. It's a tricky situation for the police to deal with as well. Like, what is the best way in in handling? We were talking about prevention of crime and prevention of uh, terrorism before. What's the best way in for the police to handle something like this kind of vigilantism? 
Yeah, I mean, they were, the police were a bit uncertain uh, the first month. They, they they quite different policies in different parts of Norway. Some some clearly said, you are not permitted to do here. It's a breach of the police law, and you are, uh, we will we will fine you if you continue. And they stopped. Elsewhere, the police uh, just sort of let them go, and they they uh, they didn't uh, intervene. And other places, they they gradually start to intervene and say that you uh, we cannot ban you from walking in the streets, but uh, we can ban you from being wearing this uh, uniform, which we see as the police uh, uniformed patrolling. And gradually, that became the policy, and that that also took away one of the main reasons why these young men wanted to be there because these uniforms were cool were cool they had they gave them a kind of image they liked it gave them the kind of feeling of belonging to a group of of, uh, of um, with a with a purpose and when it took away that that took away a lot of the of the attraction of being involved with the group so when the when finally the police started systematically to find them for wearing this uniform they the the group stopped so it lasted a bit more than a year and then it was and what was the support like from the general public it was uh, most places people were negative uh, there was no support from the political parties including from the right-wing populist um, progress party and uh, they even had the the Prose party had the minister of, of justice and he was very clear that there was no place for any kind of vigilante like groups uh, so they had no political background the media was against them the public uh, was against them uh, perhaps a few places they had some local support because uh, there were local leaders who had a good standing in the community but but mostly they they had just no support and no backing and that is something vigilante movements need in order to to exist and if they have no backing they cannot uh, they cannot exist in long run and is there anywhere from the from the other case studies internationally that you've seen uh, from the group that you've gotten together where there is significant support for these groups yeah, I mean, that that's one of the striking findings i mean we had uh, whether we take the ku klux klan who operated under the acceptance more or less of, of the local sheriff and the local judge we see this in southern europe uh, where where they have uh, where vigilante groups have a lot of backing from political parties from from uh, sometimes uh, police let them operate quite freely we saw that with the vigilante the jewish vigilantes on the west bank which more or less operated under um, military support or military they used military weapons they they were uh, were part of the security structure, and they they were not stopped by the by the mil by the Israeli defense forces. So, uh, and same in in Eastern Europe, where they have had quite a lot of backing. So, where they have where there are sort of the permissive factors are are there, whereas there are no repressive factors. These groups will flourish. Where the the repressive factors are much stronger than the permissive factors, then they will fail. And this was a case. They failed in Norway and, and uh, in quite a few other uh, Western countries, but they still exist in countries where they do have a permissive context, so to speak. So that is one of the findings we see from from our our comparative study. Uh, it's it's going to be a fascinating piece when it comes out, and it's brilliant that it's going to be open access. I'm sure a lot of our listeners will be downloading that as well and and looking through it eagerly. Tori, it would be remiss of me not to ask you one of the things that you're best known for over the past few years is your research in relation to Anders Breivik as well. Um, could you like 
could, would, could you tell your listeners what it was like carrying out this research and what, what were your key findings in relation to this hugely high-profile individual? Yeah, I mean, uh, these uh, terrorist attacks in, uh, in, on 26th of July 2011 came very much out of the blue, totally. Uh, we had, didn't have a right-wing extremist scene to be uh, spoken of uh, at the time, but suddenly we had this horrible terrorist attack, first a bombing uh, in, a, in, a, in a government district, uh, killing uh, quite some people, and then uh, the massacre at Utøya, at a political youth camp. Uh, in total, 77 people were killed by one single lone actor. And, uh, and uh, what we did, my colleague uh, Carl Hemingby and I, was to, he was involved in, a, in a st do, starting to do a, a doctorate on, on terrorist target selection, and we used this as a main case. We got access to police, uh, we, we followed the trial, mm -hmm. and everything Breivik was saying during the trial, of course we had read his manifesto, uh, and we, but the main piece of data was that we got access to the police investigative interviews of Breivik, um, about uh, 220 hours are recorded on DVD and 1200 pages transcripts. And it took some time to get it, it took us three quarters of a year. We also got, we also um, uh, corresponded with Breivik in order to get his informed consent, which he did, and it was an interesting uh, process. How, we, how he, he communicated with us, but we could use this very unique data to look uh, into detail about because he, he quite openly talked to the to the police investigators and he was uh, most of what he said was quite truthful. Obviously, it was confirmed by other investigation. Uh, he had some bluffs uh, where he tried to 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 claim that there was it was part of a larger organization which uh, was not the case, but, uh, but um, uh, the, the, this data was, was very uh, valuable in order to go into detail about how he selected and deselected his targets. He started out with, with more than 50 uh, potential targets he had thought about, and in a, in a kind of funneling process, he deselected most of them for a number of different reasons. Some of them were not sufficiently interesting for his political uh, cause. Some of them were out of his capacity. Uh, some of them, he considered some of them for being, um, being uh, having too, too, too high uh, civil casualty factors, they call it, although he was very uh, willing to kill a lot of civilians just for getting to the target. But uh, as I said, uh, more than 50% civilian casualty target is, is too much, so, so to speak. So, and then, but then uh, also a lot of operational um, consideration came into being, like it, uh, he needed a farm to, to buy fertilizer and to prepare his bombs, and it took him much longer time than planned. So his original bomb target, which was, uh, uh, I mean, his enemy image was that uh, that uh, that uh, the, the what they call the traitors. Uh, he he also had a Muslims and uh, as one enemy image, uh, the the Muslim invasion of Europe, and uh, and uh, but the other enemy enemies were the traitors who facilitated for the Muslim invasion and occupation. And he decided to not attack the Muslims, but to attack the, tra the so-called traitors, because he thought uh, uh, an attack on Muslims would, uh, would uh, backfire, and it would only give them increased sympathy, so he concentrated on what he called the, the traitors, and the media, the news media, were one of the main traitors. He was 
Never in doubt he would attack the Labour Party, uh, and in particular the government. There, there was a Labour Party government at the uh, coalition at the time with the Labour Party Prime Minister and Minister of Justice. So he decided on the on the governmental uh, district and the main building where where these uh, ministers were. But also he wanted to do a shooting attack, mm -hmm. uh, and one of the main targets would be a conference for investigative journalists. Um, called the Scoop Conference, which was in the beginning of April uh, 2011, uh, and his backup uh, were, target was uh, the, the Labour Party's convention, which was in, uh, later in April. But in reality, he couldn't get his form until uh, the beginning of May, which meant that he lost these two main targets. And then it took him more time to prepare his bombs, so he, he was not able to develop more than one bomb by early June. Then his money was starting to run out. He knew that it would be the, the street leading up to the government district would be closed off for security in in the fall. So he had the window of opportunity was the summer, and the only uh, attractive shooting target he could find was this uh, summer camp of the of the Labour Party's youth movement. So that was how he ended up with this date and this this attack. And so it was a very complex process of selection and this selection would lead up to this specific target selection yeah no th this is it's like the first we hear from obviously is this attack but it's important to be able to assess with all of these type of terrorist attacks the day-to-day -day realities of when it comes to target selection why a certain target is 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 picked and why other targets are not and it's it's that day-to-day -day reality that can really give us a, a fascinating insight into into what comes to pass in relation to terrorist attacks it's um and how did you find him communicating i know we have to go in just one minute but how what was he like communicating with well we exchanged some some letters he uh, i sent the emails to the to the prison and they gave it to him and he answered us in writing and letters back and and uh, the first letter i re when we we asked for his informed consent was was uh, a bit strange uh, he knew me because i had been an expert witness during the trial and i had made a statement there where i said i was asked because a big issue was is this man uh, insane or is he a rational terrorist and i said i considered him to be an above uh, competent terrorist and he obviously liked that so when he wrote back to, to us, he said that he would give us um, full access to everything we needed, no restrictions, but he had a question. What did you mean when you said that I was an above average competent militant, he said? Uh, can you tell me anyone, anywhere in the world, Timothy McVeigh, Muhammad Atta, anyone who masters more competencies than I do, smiley. You will not find anyone, smiley, smiley. And then he uh, wished us uh, good luck uh, with our research and signed um, with a revolutionary and narcissistic salute on the spring break. So he, he was said by the, by the psychiatrist to be a, have a narcissistic personality disorder, but he, said, he thought probably that was right, but he deserved uh, to be. <laughs> and then later, I wrote, we wanted to have an interview with him. Uh, so we wrote back to him, and then he had some second thoughts. He said, um, why do you think I will help you uh, and the police in Norway and Sweden and the UK and all over the world to understand better how we militants select our targets. Do you think I'm so narcissistic that I will help you with this? This being said, I'm willing to talk to you. Okay. And, and, uh, and um, uh, visiting form is attached. <laughs> so yes, he was that narcissistic and he knew it. <laughs> so it was uh, strange and, and uh, 
a strange experience. And sometimes, well, the guy had a certain sense of humor and, and uh, could perhaps laugh a bit about himself. But it was that was very difficult during the trial when he did crack a few jokes and people were sitting there, uh, victims, uh, parents who had lost their children, and, and, and people laughed. And that was that was difficult because he uh, sort of um, he, he he they wanted to see him as a monster, and he had some some personalities which made him look like a monster, but also had some other sides of his personality which could make uh, which included a sense of humor, and that was that was a bit difficult to handle. Thank you so much for being on today's podcast. It's uh, it's been it's been great as always. If anyone wants to read uh, or gain access to any of the pieces that were uh, discussed here, uh, there are links up on the UEL website, uel.ac.uk slash T-E-R-C, and follow us on Twitter at T-E-R-C-U-E-L, and tweet at us with the hashtag Talking Terror. Professor Tori Bjorgo, thanks again, and uh, we'll be following your research with, uh, with great interest. Thank you. Thank you.